You're listening to the Teaching Orchestra Podcast, a new place to hear from today's orchestra teachers teaching today's orchestra kids. I'm Janet. And I'm Jessica. We share our successes, struggles, and solutions working with the next generation of string musicians. And lift up our colleagues' voices from across the country. Why be an island anymore? Join Join us. So today's episode is about Kodai in the orchestra classroom. Our episode will have four parts today. First, a quick review of the methodologies that you might have learned in undergrad in case your brain is a little rusty. Second, I will talk about just Kodai and the Kodai approach as an overview. The third thing I'll do is I'll discuss the ways that the Kodai concepts can be utilized in an orchestra or string classroom setting. And then finally, I'll end with real talk as usual. That's how Jessica and I always end our episodes, which is sort of a summary and a personal reflection uh, about the topic. So let's launch into part one. This is a methodology review, and this is like super duper Cliff's Notes version of um, music education methodology. So bear with me here as I kind of speed through this part. Um, The common thread between all of the people I'll discuss in the next couple of minutes here is that these pioneers of various approaches, their their common belief was that this was how to create creative expression of music as a joyful art form. The pathway to successful musicianship varies between each, of course. So first, let's talk about Dalcroze. Emile Jacques Dalcroze believed that strong musicianship came from a mind-body connection that involved kinesthetic movement in relation to rhythm. You've probably heard of that as Dalcro's Eurythmics, right? Second, um, there's Carl Orff. Carl Orff's Schulwerk philosophy, integrated speech, unpitched and pitched percussion instruments, as well as movement that corresponds with folk songs and poetry. Next, um, I'm going to talk a little bit longer about Edwin Gordon and his music learning theory, because some of that does apply to Kodai coming up later. So Gordon's music learning theory is often called MLT for short, And it's a comprehensive sequential approach where students move from familiar material to unfamiliar material based on appropriate child development benchmarks. So the teacher, the music teacher, guides the student through the methods exercises based on the individual student's tested musical aptitude. So maybe this is ringing a couple of bells for you. Uh, Gordon believed in testing each student's musical aptitude via a test, okay? So MLT overall is largely based on the concept of audiation, which is the ability to hear and comprehend music internally without sound actually being present. And this is achieved through solfege study and rhythm solemnization study as part of the learning process. Um, MLT is inclusive of all music instruction. Uh, Gordon's exercises and pedagogical sequence can be applied to any musical setting. So that's a super duper Notes version. I'll be talking a little bit about Gordon later as it compares to Kodai. Finally, the last one I'll talk about before moving on to the big guy of the day um, is Suzuki. Suzuki is most familiar to string people. Um, Suzuki believed that children were born with the innate talent and capability to learn and perform at a high level with the correct training. So the fundamental elements of the Suzuki method include the following. Children learning violin as young as age three. Children learning to play exclusively by rote. Um, the presence of the parent at the lesson and the role of the parents um, in practice at home, 
and the intensive use of recordings in the violin repertoire. So the recordings uh, were used to help the child learn the pieces of music. But Suzuki also encouraged extensive listening as early in life as possible to help the child achieve what he thinks of as artistic greatness, okay? So there's a little caveat here. Notation, uh, so written music, right? is of relatively minor importance in the Suzuki method. He believed it was a hindrance to musical expressivity. And he thought it shouldn't be learned until much later in a child's violin study. And I think this might be one reason why Suzuki has limited use in public school classrooms, right? Um, I did recently find out on another podcast that there is a Suzuki in the school's curriculum. Um, I don't have training in it. I don't have a ton of familiarity with it. It sounds super interesting. So if you're listening and you're a Suzuki in the school certified teacher, I would love to talk to you. Reach out. Um, finally, uh, last thing I'll say is that the Suzuki method has also sort of been viewed by skeptics as neglecting to teach individual interpretations of the music since the students are taught to imitate a specific recording of each piece. Okay. So Suzuki is super influential in just sort of the rise of string education, you know, not just in Japan, but also here in the U.S. Um, so... Not, I'm not throwing out Suzuki with the bathwater at all. I think there's a lot there. In fact, I'm going to move on to part two right now, which is a Suzuki over, excuse me, a Kodai overview, but I will be talking about Suzuki because there are a, a, quite a few similarities between Kodai and Suzuki. So here we go. A little bit about Kodai. Kodai's process relied heavily on using the native folk songs of a student's culture, which he refers to as the music mother tongue. Kodai believes in the power of singing as the first form of musical engagement, and that singing is the foundation for broad musical literacy. Okay, so again, I think it's easiest to sort of compare and contrast Kodai and Suzuki together because of the general familiarity of Suzuki in string pedagogy land, right? So both Suzuki and Kodai believe strongly in sound before sight in teaching music. In other words, aural music is taught before printed music. Um, I use the word sound before sight as like my mantra, right? When teaching younger students, um, or beginner students, um, another cute way to refer to it is wrote before note, which I think is very cute. Note, of course, being written notes on the page, right? But sound before sight, wrote before note, those are Kodai concepts and Suzuki concepts, okay? So another thing they both have in common, both Suzuki and Kodai, value quality classical music listening at all stages of musical development. But here's, here's like the 2021 version of that. The decision about what constitutes quote unquote quality repertoire has certainly evolved in recent years. And Jessica and I will be exploring that in future episodes. Um, to both Suzuki and Kodai at the time, quality repertoire equaled classical music. And that is to mean Eurocentric music by dead white guys, okay? We know as educators now in 2021 that that quality repertoire should encompass so much more. It's super important to represent different cultures as much as possible and to use that as a pathway to our students' learning. Okay, but again, future episode, just putting that out there. Okay, both Suzuki and Kodai's method ideally begins at a young age. Unlike Suzuki though, Kodai and to an extent, Gordon, an MLT was focused on child development and how how child development relates to the teaching sequence. So that's what they have in common. Here's the big difference though. Kodai's method, and excuse me, I shouldn't say method, Kodai himself hated the term method. So let me say that again. 
Kodai's approach is based on singing as a first form of musical engagement through familiar folk songs. Suzuki's approach is on listening and imitating Western classical repertoire. Okay, so that's the big difference. To Kodai, familiar songs or chants and rhythms then lead to the knowledge of solfege and corresponding current hand signs and rhythmic solemnization. Then that process leads to fluency in reading printed music. Okay, it's kind of a lot to unpack, but I'll keep talking about it as we go along here so I can help you process that. Kodai's goal was for all students to become, quote, the musically literate adult. Literate in the fullest sense of being able to look at a musical score and think sound to read and write music as easily as words, end quote. So that's that's Kodai's goal, right? And um, I talked a, bit, a little bit about this in the previous podcast. That's, that's like the long-range plan. We're teaching children now so that they be- can become musically literate adults who then pass on that musical appreciation to their families and offspring as life goes on, okay? Kind of Gordon-like there, too, when he talks about uh, audiation, being able to look at a musical score and hear sound, that reminds me a lot of Gordon's MLT. Unlike MLT, though, Kodai did not place emphasis on individual aptitude of the student, right? Because Gordon likes to test each student to find out where they're at. But Kodai didn't really agree with that. Kodai did, however, place emphasis on teaching music from the student's culture and classified by sequence for effectively tiered instruction. Kodai teachers, again, use phrases like pedagogical sequence when describing this, Um, Other teachers might say benchmarks or curriculum, but to a Kodai teacher, you hear them say pedagogical sequence pretty often, okay? Kodai's path to musical literacy involves the use of movable dough solfege sequenced in a way that coincides to the cultural repertoire being introduced, right? So uh, not to get too off track, but Kodai always started with songs that were so me, and then expanding from there, so me la, and then eventually... So mi re do la, or whatever, right? Um, others like John Feyerabend, and I'll talk a little bit about that too, he starts with mi re do as opposed to so mi, just because so much of the repertoire that we do is more mi re do centric. But it's really, it doesn't matter. Like Kodai's like, you do you, okay? Um, that's the approach. The last thing I'll say before moving on to the next section is A Kodai teacher uses the three P's when planning instruction. I thought this was cute. Preparation, presentation, and practice. Okay, so I just mentioned John Feyerabend a moment ago. John Feyerabend's first steps in music and conversational solfege curricula lay this out. Um, The conversational solfege is for older students. Elementary first steps is for like birth to age five, basically. But the conversational solfege curricula Uh, lays everything out in 12 steps. And those 12 steps, without going through them, goes from modeling familiar rep, wrote like rote instruction, modeling familiar rep, then unfamiliar rep, and then eventually the students decode. That's like all part of one unit. And then once those 12 steps are accomplished, you move on to the next unit. Um, And again, Fire Robin stuff is all Kodai based uh, with a hint of some other stuff in there. I'll talk about that too. So Um, Let's move on to part three, which is Kodai in the strings classroom. So how can we take all of this and apply it to what we do? Well, that's what we'll talk about next. Uh, I dug into the research a little bit, and I found an article in Music Educators Journal by Priscilla Howard. um, And I'll talk about what Howard has to say. 
First, Howard suggests that Kodai concepts in the orchestra room can begin with tuning. Have students sing or even hum, I think, the A before tuning their A on their instrument. Let them alternate between singing and playing until they've adjusted their pitch appropriately. That's just one little tiny thing you can do. The next thing that's less tiny is uh, Howard suggests you use solfege and apply it to the repertoire. So here's where I believe a conversation with your general music teacher is extremely valuable and helpful. Um, if your students, say you're teaching middle school and your students have had uh, even just the tiniest bit of Kodai or solfege in their general music class, K through five, that way you're just using what your students are already familiar with, which is their musical language, right? And then they're transferring their familiar musical language to their unfamiliar instrument. If again, I'm speaking as if like you're a sixth grade teacher and you're starting beginners in sixth grade, but this would still work if you're teaching fourth or fifth grade beginners, they already come to you with a basis of solfege knowledge, like propagate on that is basically what this article states. So here's a great example. Mi, re, do, mi, re, do, 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 re, 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 mi, re, do. Hot cross buns, we know it, we love it. Chances are your students came to you already knowing that song, right? The next thing that Howard recommends is having a listening collection, um, which is to have listening examples of the repertoire available to your students. If what your students are learning is standard classical rep, find a recording online and ask your children to play along with it. However, a lot of um, arrangements for string orchestra are not in the original key, right? Um, so you can actually use this great Chrome extension called Transpose, and it will transpose your YouTube video or other recording um, up or down half steps so it's in a playable key. I thought that was a pretty cool thing I learned about recently. Um, if listening to recording of your piece is not an option on, you know, whether it's online or otherwise, um, you as the teacher, Howard recommends you should sing it for the children as well as demonstrate it on your instrument, which I think is a pretty interesting innovation. I think our default right now is to just grab your instrument and it sounds like this, play, 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 play. Howard really thinks we should sing and play for our students if the recording is not available. Um, interestingly, Howard recommends no vibrato and a pure tone um, when singing and playing your instrument. I'm not 100% sure I agree with that since vibrato is natural and beautiful. My voice has it. I don't want to take it away um, because it's not necessarily healthy to do that. Um, if you're a singer and you're kind of vibrato-y like me, you can sing to your student using a loo vowel. It's sort of like a loo vowel sort of takes away that vibrato-y edge. Unless, of course, you're singing on solfege, right? And to that, what about note names, right? Um, that's the big that's the big ask. Howard emphasizes that in time, kids need to know syllables and note names and appropriate fingerings. But Howard believes, starting with solfege, that our students will play with better intonation. And I will say, I've seen this myself. My former colleague used to teach uh, the students that fed into my middle school, um, solfege, they sang everything and then played it. And I will tell you, compared to students from other elementary buildings, their intonation was better. So I've seen this in real life. Um, I anecdotally believe that that's very much the truth. Um, I mentioned earlier that Suzuki gets downplayed in school settings, partly due to the de-emphasis on reading musical notation. And I know that by doing what Howard suggests in her article, 
you're effectively delaying notation-based instruction. And so this is where I get torn. If you teach secondary like me, you might be frustrated if your feeder elementary teacher sends you students who don't read pitch names on the staff fluently. I do believe that reading notation, especially uh, being able to sight read, is truly the stuff joyful music making is made of. But if you teach reading too early, you run the kiss risk of kids becoming quote-unquote button pushers. So button pushers are the kids that see an F on the staff and play F sharp for all eternity regardless of key signature. They don't seem to hear the difference and adjust as they go. Teaching note names as they apply to left-hand finger patterns too early is essentially teaching muscle memory and de-emphasizing the listening component. Um, an amazing article which introduced me to this idea of musical button pushers is called Musical Literacy, Reading Traditional Clef Notation. Um, that's an article by Janet Mills and Gary McPherson, and it's in the book Child as a Musician, which I read for a different graduate class I took, and it absolutely changed me. It's a great book. Uh, it's really a college textbook, but it's a collection of essays and articles. Highly recommend. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, so you know, we want to avoid our students becoming button pushers who just ignore what their actual sound is and they're constantly adjusting um, for the tonality. Um, a second article I found about Kodai in the instrumental classroom was um, from 1990. Uh, it's by Bernstein and Fioka, also from the Music Educators Journal. And the title of this article is Bringing General Music Techniques to the Instrumental Class. So, um, it lays out, this article lays out a sequence for teaching strings in the same way an elementary general music teacher does. Okay. One, listen to the melodic or rhythmic material. Two, students echo the pattern on previously learned rhythm or pitch solemnization. Three, play the patterns. Then once the students have learned this concept, then you present it visually. So that's 100% Kodai right there. Okay. The authors also say that, quote, each instrumental educator should consider incorporating the system of rhythm or rhythm syllables that is used in the elementary general music program in one's school system. All right, so I said this earlier, same thing. Re ask your general music people, they know so much, right? So maybe your elementary school students learned uh, traditional rhythmic solemnization. Kodai uses ta and titi. Uh, Gordon uses do, do day, you know, so ask your general music teacher what those kids know. Use that familiar language. Interestingly, Fire Robbins publications, which are Kodai based, actually use Gordon's do, do day system. So kind of an interesting twist there. Um, um, the next thing I say is this is another confirmation of how general music feeds your string program right here. The song repertoire of the general music program can also be used in your instrumental classes. Yes. Right? This is the folk song that's already in your students' ears. They're coming to you in orchestra with a pedagogical knowledge of simple songs, even, even if that teacher didn't use selfish at all. Either way, you want to propagate on that. If your general music colleague <laughs> looks overwhelmed and you say, hey, friend, what folk songs are your kids learning in your class? They might like turn all shades of gray because they're like, uh, hundreds? I don't know. Um, that a great starting point, you know, if they if they can't like think of them all on the top of their head, just ask for their recorder music if they played recorder. Um, or <laughs> this is good and bad. If they're a Kodai educator, they will probably hand you a very menacing binder full of collected folk songs. So just be prepared for that. Um, either way, use what your students know. Talk to your people who give you your students. Right. Um, find out what they know. Use their language. Uh, finally, the authors of this article talk about Kerwin hand signs as an option. 
Um, again, I think you can throw this out if the students don't come to you with Kerwin Hansine knowledge. I think most students do learn that in general music classes. I taught it when I taught general music. Um, the benefit with using Kerwin Hansine's in orchestra is you can teach aural perception without printed materials. Do you hate the paper parade as much as I do when you say things like, take out your scale sheet, and the kids are like, I don't have it, I can't find mine, or the ever popular, I need rosin. You're wasting time, right? If you want to get your kids playing right away, um, show them hand signs. Have them echo hand signs uh, either vocally or on their instrument. It's just a great way to like use like a nonverbal communication tool with your students. Um, let's see. The next thing the authors say is they talk about rhythm explanation and they call it something different. They call it an echo response. But it's, it's super similar. Students will echo unfamiliar patterns and then play those patterns on their instruments. And again, the authors say again, use the already learned general folk songs, general music folk songs to teach new rhythm patterns visually. So this is being echoed over and over again. Use what they know, know that they know how to decode it and then put it in front of them on paper. Uh, same with on pitch, right? Um, they say start dictating a starting pitch and have kids play simple pentatonic melodies by ear. Um, so I, I find that I, I tend to uh, forget to do this sort of thing. Like, hey guys, figure out how to play happy birthday when it's a kid's birthday. I should be scaffolding this better in my own classroom, right? Um, in orchestra, another thing they say is once kids learn finger patterns about outside of the D major scale, that is our beginner default, right? D major. Um, have them play things like hot cross buns starting on other pitches, all right? I found this to be very effective. Um, instead of having them start their hot cross buns on F sharp or C sharp, have them start it on a different string. Um, maybe have them start it on G on the D string, right? So sing it for them. Mi, re, do, mi, re, do. Well, hey guys, now G, now is your first note, not F sharp. Figure out how that goes. And if they don't do a low one for E flat, they're going to know and they're going to correct and they're going to fix it. All right, that gets your cellos and basses into half position. It gets your violins and violas playing low one. So they've played, they might be like, we already know hot cross buns. Ah, but do you know hot cross buns starting on a different pitch? So to me, that is using Kodai 100% to help your students learn new finger patterns, okay? Uh, interestingly, if you've ever used the Essential Elements series in your teaching, they actually do this. Uh, as you get further and further along in the series, they bring back those old songs like Mary Had a Little Lamb, Hot Cross Buns. Um, I can't think of any others, but um, they do that later on. The difference is, though, they present it visually first. And I think you can absolutely use essential elements if you still like it, but you should present it orally first, then have them open their books. And then they're like, oh, Hot Cross Buns starts G on the D string. We're in the key of E flat now. Okay, I get it. So that's just another way you can utilize it. Um, now I'm gonna move on to part four. Part four is our real talk section. Um, so I'll kind of do some summarizing here. I'd like to just start real talk with a disclaimer. I personally am a former general music and choral music teacher. My undergraduate degree is vocal performance. Singing to students does not bug me at all. It's super convenient and I can do it from the podium with my hands free. I can restring a viola while singing to my students. It's a way I multitask, okay? However, I do realize that many instrumental music educators are not confident or comfortable singers, especially if they lack solfege skills. 
But I will say this, a little vote of confidence here. Even if your judgiest students, I mean, middle schoolers, come on. Your judgiest students are not judging your vocal quality. Your biggest goal is just to demonstrate pitch accuracy and articulation as best as you can, okay? Now, if you're nervous because solfege is not your thing, I would just start small. Practice singing solfege with simple melodies, the ones you know well and the ones that you do all day and like hear in your head all night when you're trying to sleep, right? Um, you can also write the solfege in your scores, um, just abbreviated solfege, just like D for do, R for re. I find that to be really helpful. Um, <laughs> this is something I do as an itinerant teacher because I travel between buildings every day. I solfege in my car. Uh, I'm kind of a nerd that way. If I'm listening to the radio, I sometimes figure out the solfege. Um, as like a decoding strategy. Um, or I'm kind of, I've never been really great with rhythm. So sometimes I try to decode the rhythm of a pop song, you know, using like do, do, day. Um, you might surprise yourself. You might be better at it than you thought. Um, you can certainly buy a Kodai Method sight singing book or bust out your undergraduate ear training textbook. I don't think that's totally necessary. You shouldn't like go out of your way, in my opinion. Use what's relevant to you and your teaching, which is your repertoire, right? Um, interesting side note, my graduate uh, solfege instructor advised keeping our little solfege, Kodai solfege books in the bathroom for practice, which I thought was hysterical. Just thought I'd put that out there. Um, another strategy, again, if you just want to be more comfortable as a sight singer, is use Sight Reading Factory. It's a great online tool, sightreadingfactory.com. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, or, you know, find your elementary school teacher's conversational solfege manual if your district is using conversational solfege. Um, find a tonal unit in the series and start solfeging your face off. It can be a nice, a fun way to do it and another way to learn the repertoire that the kids already know when they come to you. So um, remember that Kodai wanted children to learn solfege in the way that we learn as, as English speakers to speak a different language, which is, you know, learn orally before visually with lots of repetition. Okay. Um, that's why Feyerabend calls his Kodai-based curriculum conversational solfege, right? Um, okay, so now I'm thinking you're probably worried about, like, you're asking me to add an entirely new layer to my teaching, and I don't have time, right? Time concerns are very valid, and I hear you. Singing, and, you know, when you're singing to your students and you're asking your students to echo vocally, it means that they're not playing, and they're there to play, and I get that. But I just want to say, I think in the end, this saves time. Being an orchestra teacher or like any music teacher anywhere is a multitasking nightmare, okay? So you can demonstrate vocally while teaching a concept while tuning an instrument. To me, that's what I do. I, I, if I had 14 arms, I could tune, you know, seven instruments at a time and still teach with my voice. Um, if you're <laughs> asking your students to sing as a group, that squirrely kid in the back row isn't making excuses not to participate by saying things like, again, I need rosin. No, you don't need rosin to sing, kiddo just sing, right? Um, and in the true Kodai way, what they're hearing and producing vocally will translate into playing accuracy, intonation accuracy, confidence on their instrument, etc. Um, plus, you know, and I think instrumental people tend to forget this, when kids are singing, they're being musical. Um, I'm an advocate of the CMP model, Comprehensive Musicianship Through Performance. That is another podcast I'm very excited to do down the road. Um, musicianship matters. Um, one principal I worked for years ago had a motto, and his, his motto was, go slow to go fast. Go slow to go fast. So 
While adding Kodai methodology seems to be slower than just having kids go straight to notation, you're really just asking them to go straight to notation and start pushing those buttons, right? That button pushing analogy. Okay, read what you see. You see an F, you're gonna play an F. You see a G, you're gonna play a G. It doesn't matter what it sounds like, you know. I, I do think that adding this extra step with singing will pay off over time. I've seen it in my own school district and I do believe in it. Um, okay, and here's, here's the next elephant in the room. You might experience your students protesting. Your students might say, if I wanted to sing, I would have signed up for choir. And here's your answer to that. You say, all musicians sing. And if sing becomes, the word sing or singing becomes like the dirty word in your classroom, um, call it something different. Say, okay, we're gonna vocalize or we're going to verbalize this song, I think are ways to get around um, the singing being like the triggering word, okay? So, all right, everyone, we're gonna vocalize your part starting at measure five. One, two, ready, go. Um, I think it's a great way to get around if you have a very, very adamant class that they won't sing. Um, if they start with pedagogy, like this singing approach in orchestra, when you first get them, they know no difference. So that's, that's the most ideal situation. I think transitioning older students who haven't had to speak rhythm syllables or sing on solfege syllables before playing, you might have a bit of a war and I, I hear you. In that case, I do think it's okay to loosen the reins a bit and simplify. Maybe just focus on singing the melodies for them on solfege and have them echo back on their instruments. I feel like that's a fair compromise. If they won't sing back to you, you model solfege, they play back. And maybe like another approach is not even mention, okay kids, we're going to do this on solfege now. Just, just know that like me means F sharp, re means E, do means do, you don't need to say that, just model that. So to me, that's still utilizing Kodai methodology in a way that suits you, your comfort level, your student's comfort level. So I might say, okay, everyone, we're gonna play the tune that sounds like this. So do, re, mi, re, do, re, mi, do, do. So do, re, mi, re, do, re, mi, do, do. And all the kids go, 1812 overture, right? So that's, if, if that's as far as you get with this, that is okay. You're still modeling to them a musical language and they'll come to it when they're ready. So that's this episode, Kodai in the Orchestra Classroom. Um, I hope you found a few little nuggets that you can take away and apply in your classroom. Just know like, that you don't have to go all in with this. We all come to teaching our orchestra kids with different levels of strength and security around these different methodologies. It's just one idea. And even if you don't get past modeling and modeling and soulfish and having your kids play back, or even something is so simple, right? I mentioned earlier, have your kids sing the A. Have your kids hum the A. You're doing something that Kodai would love, and that is just a great place to start. So um, we'll be back. Our next episode is tips and tricks for group instruction. We have some great ideas we're excited to talk to you about. Thanks, everyone.